This morning I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Holy Scripture to Ephesians chapter number 6. Ephesians 6, where we will continue our topical study on spiritual warfare and the armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. It was through the prophet Amos that the Lord God said this. He said, Behold, the days are coming that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. One of those times of spiritual famine was during the Dark Ages when the written Word of God was available only to the Roman Catholic clergy and then, even then, only in the form of Jerome's Latin Vulgate translation. And consequently, generations of people lived and died without ever hearing the words of the Lord. But it was from those dark ages that God raised up a man named William Tyndall whose purpose and passion in life was to shine the light of the Scriptures into the darkness of his own homeland, England. And to Tyndall, William Tyndall, that could only be accomplished by translating the Bible for all to hear and to read in their own English language. In fact, William Tyndall is on record as saying to a Roman Catholic priest of his day, if God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of the Scripture than you do. That is, his dream was for a farm boy to hear and to know more of God's Word than even the Roman Catholic priests. And toward that end, Tyndall was labeled a heretic. William Tyndall was forced to flee England as a fugitive of the Roman church. Consequently, biographers have called him God's outlaw. And for his own safety and security, no portrait of William Tyndall's likeness was ever painted until after his death, and then only from the artist's memory. It is said of of that portrait, which today hangs in the dining hall of Hertford College, Oxford, that that portrait is most accurate, not in revealing the face of William Tyndall, but the heart of William Tyndall. And in that portrait, projected there before you, William Tyndall is holding a book in one hand, and he's pointing to that book with his finger. Presumably, that book is a copy of the English Bible. He's pointing to it with his other hand, and this is what the inscription reads, to scatter Roman darkness by this light, the loss of land and life. I'll reckon slight. Tyndall's translation of the Bible into the English language was not the first one that was credited to John Wycliffe, but Tyndall was the first one to take advantage of a, of a new invention of the day, and that is Gutenberg's movable type press, so that on a large scale, the Bible could be printed and distributed to the English-speaking world making a tremendous contribution on the Protestant Reformation. Of course, today we all hold in our hands a copy of of the English Bible. And I suppose that you own multiple copies of the English Bible, or perhaps you own multiple versions of the English Bible. 
And this word, this spiritual sword, is what pierces the darkness of our world and of our hearts. Earlier in the service, we corporately, we read Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living It's powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, if they are divisible, and of joints and marrow, divisible. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the, the heart, and God's living, powerful, sharp sword cuts in that way. And this word is the spiritual sword that gives us victory over the rulers of the darkness of this age. You have your Bibles open before me, before you allow me to read, as we've read many times this summer, Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. We live in dark ages, folks. Against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. We live in an evil day. And having done all to stand, therefore, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, which, which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation, and here we are this morning, verse 17, and the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God. From Ephesians 6, verse 17, I prepared a topical message titled, The Sword of the Spirit. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll study together. God in heaven, we thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and and forever. You, You do not change. You are immutable. And for that reason, we can look to you, just as the saints of old, over the, the many, many ages have looked to you. But God, we recognize that we live in in dark ages, in a modern dark ages. And Lord, there is a famine for the hearing of your word. But you have given us the sword of the Spirit, your word, to take up for battle. And I pray that you would equip us and empower us with that resource this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Ephesians 6 verse 17 tells us to take the sword. There are generally two types of swords that were used in the ancient Roman world uh, or the the first century Roman soldiers. First, there was the large broadsword called a gladius. And a Roman soldier might fight with a gladius, that large sword. We can picture the gladiator wielding his large, heavy sword, perhaps with two hands, and and you can picture him swinging it and clanging it against the sword of his his enemy. That was the gladius sword used by the gladiator. But then there was a a second sword, a smaller, leaner sword that was called a machaira. And that sword was not used to swing in broad strokes, but was rather used to thrust and to cut. That was the sword that Peter used in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember that when Jesus was arrested, the Bible says that Peter drew his sword, cut off the, the ear of the servant of the high priest there on that occasion. 
That is the sword that is being referenced in Ephesians 6 verse 17. It was standard issue for Roman soldiers. But in describing and detailing the armor of God here in this text, of course the Apostle Paul is not speaking of a physical sword, but of a spiritual sword. He calls it the sword of the Spirit. And he quickly clarifies that in the final clause of verse 17, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the weapon of the Word. Number one, the weapon of the Word. And we might assume that the Greek word translated word at the end of verse 17 is logos. We're familiar with that Greek term, logos or word. Most of us would recognize that Greek word. But logos is not used here. The word translated word in verse 17 is the Greek rhema. Okay, but why? Some make the case that rhema refers to the spoken word of God, while logos refers to the written word of God. But in my word study, I found these terms to be so synonymous and interchangeable, it's hardly worth mentioning. Okay, then Pastor Matt, why are you mentioning it? Other, uh, other than in my, um, in, in my word study this week, I found... In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we know it as the Septuagint or the Septuagint, Isaiah 40 verse 8 uses rhema. And this is what Isaiah 40 verse 8 says. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. It's the Greek rhema. The rhema of our God stands forever. And so while the difference between the the Greek logos and the Greek rhema may be without distinction, there is one thing we know about the word of God. We know about the rhema of God, and that is it stands forever. It is everlasting. It doesn't change, just as in the character of God that we heard sung just a moment ago. So what does that teach us? Discuss this in your small groups this week. The word of God, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the rhema of God, what does that teach us? It teaches us that the sword of the spirit never gets damaged. It never gets destroyed. It doesn't wear out. It doesn't become outdated or irrelevant. The word of God is the resource that is everlasting and we can take it up. And Paul calls God's word the sword of the spirit because it is sourced in the spirit's and supplied by the Spirit. Previously, I explained that the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation, two of the the pieces of armor that we've previously studied, they are genitives of apposition. It is the shield which is faith. It is the helmet which is salvation. In this case, the sword of the Spirit is not a genitive of apposition. It is not the sword which is the Spirit. It is a genitive of origin or source. It is the sword which is from the Spirit, that is supplied by the Spirit, given by the Spirit. And so often when we think of the the Bible, we call it the Word of God, we can more specifically call it the Word of the Spirit of God. It's the Word of God, but specifically it's the Word which comes from the Spirit. The Bible is God's revelation to man through the Spirit, and it is to be unleashed, it is to be unsheathed in our warfare against the wicked one. So this morning in a topical way, I want to tell you about the sword of the Spirit, I want to tell you about the Word of God. I want to tell you of the the weapon of the Word, the the weapon of the, the rhema, and I would begin with this. It is inspired. 
Second Peter 1, I've given you the reference there, explains how that the Holy Spirit of God moved some 40 different men over the course of 1,500 years to write the very words of God so that Paul could tell Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. We call it the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. Verbal means that each word. Plenary means all the words. Inspiration, it's sourced in the Spirit. God's Word is not the imaginations of men. God's Word is not the scribbles of scribes. God's Word is His breathed out revelation to us. And in His good providence, God has preserved it for us so that we can read it today and study it today and memorize it today and use it today in our own language. What a blessing that is. It is inspired. The sword which is from the Spirit, the Word of God is inspired. It's also, number two, number two, letter B, it's infallible. What do we mean when we say that the Bible is infallible? When we refer to the infallibility of Scripture, we mean that the Scripture is totally reliable and trustworthy. I've given you Psalm 19, verse number seven. The law of the Lord is, is perfect. But how could fallible men write an infallible Bible. Think about that. Well, the answer is because of letter A. (laughs) You see, inspiration. The Holy Spirit of God governed the process and qualified the product so that we can trust it as infallible. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, it's inspired, it's infallible. Letter C, it's inerrant inerrant, that is God's word, is without error. Now, there are no mistakes in the Bible. Whatever it says about science or history or geography or mathematics, it is completely and totally accurate. Of course, over the centuries, people have questioned it and challenged it, but in every case, every case, over and over again, the Bible has been proven to be true. It is inerrant. Charles Ryrie has said it this way, God superintended the human authors so that using their own individual personalities, they composed and recorded without error his revelation to man in the words of the original autographs. The autographer, we, we call it. That is the, the, the very first copy. And, and you know, we don't have the, the autographer. We don't have those first copies of, of those letters. And it's a good thing we don't. You know why? If we had the autographer, we would enshrine them in some museum. We would all take pilgrimages there. And, and our, our bibliology, our doctrine of the Bible, might digress into bibliolatry, worship of the Bible. But God has supernaturally providentially preserved his word over the centuries and the millennia. And we know that it is without error. We would say this, God's word is complete. It is complete. Nothing needs to be added to the Bible. In fact, Revelation 22 warns us against that very thing. And so in his infinite wisdom, God chose to give us a complete body of of revelation. So that if someone says to you, I got another word from the Lord, respectfully disagree. 
God has given us the complete canon of revelation to us and is no longer adding to the Holy Scripture with additional word. God's word is complete. Therefore, God's word is sufficient. God's word is sufficient. The sword of the Spirit is sufficient. 2 Timothy 3, Paul reminded Timothy that from childhood he had known the Holy Scriptures which were able to make him wise for salvation. They were sufficient for salvation. And more than that, the Scripture isn't only sufficient for our salvation, it's sufficient for our sanctification. 2 Timothy 3 goes on to say all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. We talked of that a moment ago. And it is profitable for doctrine. That's what is right. For reproof, what is not right. For correction, that's how to get right. For instruction in righteousness, that's how to stay right. That the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped or furnished for every good work. And folks, I want this to be a big talking point among us this week in our small groups. In your home Bible fellowships this week, as we review these things, park on subpoint letter E for a while and discuss how it is that God's word, the sword of the spirit, is sufficient for us. Does the Bible speak to every issue of life? Well, no, the Bible is not exhaustive in that it doesn't tell me how to fix my car, right? I need YouTube for that. (laughs) And after I check YouTube, I still take it to a mechanic. Okay, the Bible is not exhaustive, but the Bible is comprehensive. It is sufficient to address how I must live rightly before the Lord and before others when my car breaks down, you see. The Bible's not exhaustive, but it's comprehensive for every spiritual need of man. And for that reason, a cry of the, the, the Reformation was sola scriptura, scripture alone. So often people will push back at me in pastoral counseling. They'll say, yeah, Pastor Matt, I, I know what the Bible says, but I need professional help. And I'm thinking, yeah, you really do. But, uh, or, yeah, I, I know, I know, I appreciate the Bible and all, but, but Pastor Matt, really, this is bigger than the Bible. Or, yeah, Pastor Matt, I, the, the Bible's helpful in some areas, but you don't understand my situation. So, so talk about this in your small groups. The Bible doesn't explain how to change the alternator under your hood, right? Is that a thing? Is an alternator a thing? I've, I've heard of that. Um, the Bible doesn't help you fix your car, but the Bible is sufficient for life and godliness, and we go to it in every matter. The Bible is also, letter F, it's effective. It's effective. Through the prophet Isaiah, God said, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. It shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. God's word, the sword of the spirit is effective. How about this? Because of all of these previous subpoints, God's word, the sword of the spirit is authoritative. And hundreds of times in the scriptures we read the phrase, "Thus says the Lord." It's a qualifier and it carries weight and it demands obedience because it's the word of God. It's the sword of the spirit of God. It's authoritative because it comes from God. And we bow to it and we obey it. 
It's authoritative. It's authoritative. It's what God has said to the Thessalonians. Paul wrote, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectively works in you who believe. And the sword of the spirit is the weapon of the word that pierces the darkness of our world. It pierces our own hearts. And so we wield the sword of the spirit because it is that which is authoritative over us and it's authoritative over the spiritual forces of Ephesians 6, verse number 12. A bibliology, a doctrine of the Bible. And I hope that you always hold God's word high. The word of God. It is a resource for us. Secondly then, the weapon of the word, it's a weapon to be used. And this is now where the rubber meets the road. And you'll forgive me for stating the obvious here, but if the sword is put away, if it is sheathed, we call it. If the sword is unused, if the sword is left um, at the church for the course of the week. Has anybody ever done that? Anybody ever left your Bible here? Have you noticed you left your Bible here until the next Sunday morning? You left your Bible in the car, you don't know where your Bible is, it's gathering dust on the TV stand or whatever the case. We need to use that weapon. We must pull it out, hold it up, bear it, and brandish it. Picture a, a duel, perhaps in the, the good old days, the Wild West and the frontier, in a duel, a gunfight, each man would have his hand by his side ready to draw his weapon, in that case, of course, his, his revolver. Or picture a sword fight. Each man draws his sword, and he, and he holds it up. He's waving it. It's out in front of him. He's circling his opponents, right, prepared for the fight. And uh, we need to use the sword of the Spirit, the, the word of God as, as our weapon. Up to this point in our study of spiritual warfare, we've generally assumed a defensive posture as we stand against all of the, the flaming arrows, the fiery darts of the wicked one, the wiles of the devil. Defensively, we arm ourselves with all these pieces of the armor uh, defensively. But the sword is used not only defensively, but also offensively. And so our, for our purposes this morning, I want us to consider how we might use the weapon of the word offensively in our battle against the wicked one. Letter A is offensively. Offensively. It's Bible commentator Peter O'Brien. He, he makes the case, and, and I've copied these things for you there in the back of your notes, but he says the sword is to be used. In fact, just even stop there. That's, that's the point. Your takeaway this morning, the sword is to be used, all right? But it's to be used in, in these ways. When a believer goes on the attack and makes new conquest in God's cause, the faithful speaking forth of the gospel in the realm of darkness so that men and women held by Satan's might, Satan might hear his liberating and life-giving word and be freed from his grasp. So the sword is the weapon that we use offensively first for evangelism, 
for evangelism. Because Timothy had known the Holy Scriptures, he he became wise to salvation. For faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, which by the way, I need to tell you that the word translated word in Romans 10 verse 16, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, that word translated word is the Greek rhema. Again, the everlasting word from Isaiah, the word from from here in Ephesians 6, the, the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And evangelism demands the use of a sword because a gospel witness is a word witness. We must preach and proclaim. When was the last time that you spoke a word of witness to an unbeliever. We might all lament that we don't see a lot of people saved these days. Well, maybe it's because that's convicting, isn't it? It's the word, it's the sword of the Spirit that we present to people in evangelism, and shame on us for the cop-out. Well, I'll, I'll just pray for the lost, or I hope they see the promotional invitation to that event. We take the sword of the Spirit, say, hey, would you be willing to read the Gospel of John with me? For evangelism, how about this? For edification. For edification, Psalm 19, the scripture there boasts of the sufficiency of scripture for, for everything we need. You're familiar with Psalm 19. Second Timothy 3 tells us the Bible is sufficient to equip us for every good work. Second Peter 1 tells us that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And for these reasons, we ought to be committed to the use of the weapon, the weapon to be used in the faithful and full exposition of God's word for our edification. I take this very seriously. In my line of work, the Puritan John Owen, he wrote this, the first and principal duty of a pastor is to feed the flock by diligent preaching of the word. The feeding is the essence of the office of a pastor. Folks, whatever I may be, whoever I may be, or whatever Fourth Baptist Church is or isn't, There's a lot of things that we are and we aren't. But may it be always said that we hold up the spirit, the sword of the spirit of God's word in this place because it is his resource for our own edification and growth. And his will is for us to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and to grow toward his likeness by the washing of water by the word. So may we always have God's word in the forefront, not just of the Sunday morning service event, but every class and every assembly and every event that we have for our own edification. So we use the sword of the Spirit offensively. Talk about that this week in your your small groups. We don't mean to offend necessarily, but to be offensive um, with the use of, of God's Word. And it's not just offensively, then of course it's defensively defensively, and I know your notes are complete, and that's by design. I want you to set your notes aside. I want you to go with me to Matthew chapter 4 for a familiar case study, a familiar case study for us when we think of 
of the use of the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And that is uh, the case study of Jesus himself when being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4, you're familiar with this? Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Matthew 4 verse 1. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, the tempter said, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. After all, you're hungry. But he, Jesus, answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus is answering Satan with a citation from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse number 3. Matthew 4, verse 4 is a citation of what is written in Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Look at verse 5. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, Satan is speaking now, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now, here's the thing. Satan is quoting Scripture. Satan is wielding the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. What's going on here, people? Be careful and cautious to know that Satan will use or misuse the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, against us all the time. And Satan will sling sound bites of the Bible at us to confuse us with the Word of God. You see, this is some of his deception, his, his wiles, his schemes, his methods. Jesus answered rebuking him by quoting from Deuteronomy 6.16 in, in verse number 7. Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. For the third time now in verse 8, again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. In Matthew 4, verse number 10, Jesus responded again, referencing Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, here it is, you shall worship the Lord your God in him only shall you serve. Folks, in each of these cases, in each of these temptations, Jesus drew the sword of the Spirit and he cited Scripture. In fact, he cited the Scripture specifically and appropriately. Here's what Jesus, here's what Jesus didn't say. I, I think somewhere in the Bible, it, it, I, I, I don't know, but like I heard the preacher once, I, I just, something, I, I don't know. Jesus was able to cite it is written with precision and give an answer. Are you able to do that? Am I able to do that? This past, uh, just yesterday, I guess it was Saturday, this, this last weekend, I think 20 or 25 men here from Fourth Baptist Church went to a, a shooting range for, for a range day. And all of the men brought their, their firearms, and we were at the range, and we were shooting. And, um, of course, it was supervised there by, 
by attendants from the, the range. And numerous times, <laughs> one of the attendants there tapped me on the shoulder and corrected my grip on the gun and told me that I needed to practice more. And he was diplomatic about it, but basically he, he says, you know why you're not hitting the target is because clearly you have not spent enough time with a handgun. You need, and then he, he told me I shoot a thousand rounds a week or I've, you know, whatever crazy numbers. And, um, but, but here's the thing. The truth of the matter is I shoot a gun a couple times a year. I am not a sharpshooter. I am not a professional marksman. And so how is it when you take up your weapon, the sword of the Spirit, that you fumble with it? And uh, I, I think I better go to the index to, and I better check the concordance. And you know what? I'm just going to Google it, right? Because we don't know what to do or where to go because we have not spent the time in practice with that sword. But defensively, as we are arming ourselves against the attacks of the wicked one, we want to be able, as Jesus did, to wield the sword. David said, your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. You might complain, but pastor, you don't understand. I, I've memorized all the Bible verses, right? The fighter verses. I've gone through, through the Iwana Clubs program. I, things are highlighted and bookmarked and such, and yet I still sin How can God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, complete, sufficient, effective, authoritative word give me victory over temptations of Satan? Talk about that this week and wrestle with that matter. God has given us the resource, and we simply need to unleash or unsheathe the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, from God himself. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your holy word. Thank you for the resource it is as a, as a weapon to be used. It's a, a sword, a sharp sword, Lord. It can cut. It can protect. I pray that you would grant each of these here this morning, those under the sound of my voice, the courage to take up the sword and Lord, we pray that you would give us victory as we use it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.